0: Welcome to another episode of the Blank podcast. Nirit, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Would you like to introduce yourself to everyone out there listening?
1: Sure. So, my name is Nirit Sofer Dudek. I'm a clinical psychologist and a faculty member at Ben Gurion University uh, in the Negev in Israel um, at the Department of Psychology. I'm a researcher and a clinician. I research uh, consciousness states and their relationship to psychopathology and uh, personality and uh, stress, and uh, one of my research topics is maladaptive daydreaming, which I've come to talk to you here today.
0: How did you come across maladaptive daydreaming? Like, how, what? Where's your interest for
1: it? Well, um, it actually started when Professor Ellie Zomer uh, approached me. After he had seen, he's the one who termed, who coined the term, um, and he had seen a paper of mine that was published uh, in 2015. Uh, the topic of the paper was uh, the relationship between dissociative absorption, which I'll explain in a bit, uh, the relationship between that and uh, obsessive compulsive tendencies or symptoms, and he realized that those. That topic was very close to this thing that he was just trying, starting starting to research. And uh, we teamed up and he sent me um, just a few emails, just a few examples of the emails he had been getting. And uh, it was so interesting. It was just amazing to read about. And, you know, I realized that he was really onto something that that isn't uh, known to clinicians, but should be and to researchers. Um, and it just seemed really interested and we started a collaboration and ever since we've been, uh, friends and colleagues, and we've collaborated on many projects, m- many projects together. So I'll just say a word about what dissociative absorption is. So, um, dissociation is a clinical concept. It's, uh, it's, it's defined as a disintegration between mental elements or psychological, uh, functions. So, for example, if I tell you about uh, a really traumatic memory, but I don't feel any emotion when I tell you about it, because, you know, that's too much to handle. So I kind of do this, like, intellectualiz- intellectual- intellectualization, and I, um, I kind of tell you, tell you about it in a really non-emotional way, and, like, the emotion is kind of uh, – I stick it in a drawer – deep in my mind, and I don't want to touch it while I, t- I tell you about it, that's a dissociative process. So um, it's a kind of a hazy concept, but that's that's just about the, the, the gist. Um, and dissociative absorption is actually a subscale in a very popular questionnaire about dissociation. And this subscale is, uh, it taps onto normative dissociation, to processes that every Every person has now or then, but the question is, you know, what, to what frequency, what frequency do they have it? So for example, um, driving somewhere, uh, that, you know, well, and not noticing what's going on because you're spacing out and then realizing that you got there, but that you don't remember the trip. Uh, that's something that happens to has happened to almost any experienced driver Um, And that's assumed to be a process which involves both dissociative absorption and dissociative amnesia, uh, where you kind of uh, uh, drive on an autopilot mode, uh, and you're very absorbed in like daydreaming, and not on the road. But then you still manage to stop at red lights and do all that stuff and drive fine and not get in an accident. And then you don't remember the road because your consciousness was focused or absorbed in something else and also you know getting so absorbed in um in a movie or in a book or on your daydreaming uh so absorbed and immersed to the point where um you kind of become oblivious to your surroundings like if i would call you i would say robbie robbie and you wouldn't hear me or you would answer on autopilot and then not remember that we talked or that you answered or what you answered that would again be a dissociative process. So again, it happens to everyone to a certain extent, but uh, people who are high in this uh, construct are people who have these experiences all the time. So they kind of tend to live their lives in a less integrated way and more like in parts, um, more dissociative, this is normal dissociation. But again, this specific scale, it's normal to a certain extent, and what I've shown in my in a few studies that I've done is that if you're high on this scale, then that's related to various psychological symptoms and especially obsessive-compulsive symptoms. Um, so if you want, I can explain why. Um, I just got a but, couple questions,
0: but leading up to the higher part of the scale, does that build with time? Does that dissociativeness, whatever that you're experiencing, does that happen? I mean, it has to be lack of interest. I think everyone diso- dissociates. I'm probably saying that wrong. But, yeah, you
1: said that fine, actually.
0: <laughs> okay, good. Uh, but there's probably plenty of times people do that on their daily basis, but much like how there's a significant difference between maladaptive daydreaming and then regular daydreaming, it's probably something like that where- Eventually, you start losing interest in a lot of things where you kind of dissociate, and then it becomes like an everyday thing so much where you're missing giant – it probably linked in with time blindness at some point. People looking, going, well, where would the time go? Because I don't know. It's a lack of a boredom. I do it when I drive too. I don't remember sometimes getting home. I don't mean to. I just thought I was dealing with some type of like Alzheimer's or something. I have no clue. It was freaking me out for a little bit, but then I just realized that I've taken the same road a thousand times, you know, every like, you know, every year just to get home. So it's kind of like I know the drive, I know the speed limit, I know everything. There's not a need to think. Yeah. You just to get home. So right. that can be very risky because then you can find yourself doing that most of the time. The next, you know, you blink and you're like 50 years old or 60 years old. And you're like, where did the time go? We well, didn't take count of the moments, I guess. I don't know.
1: Okay. So <laughs>
0: <laughs> I said a lot. You, you,
1: yeah, you said a lot. I'm not sure. But um, I'll I'll just react to some of the things that you said. So first of all, regarding maladaptive daydreaming. So dissociative absorption is actually... Um, something it's not exactly like maladaptive daydreaming, but it's related. Like people who maladaptive daydream usually become very absorbed and, uh, kind of can maybe do things on autopilot while they're daydreaming. So they have this ability or this trait. I don't know if to call it an ability is, is exactly accurate. Um, it's, it's an ability and it's both a uh, disability. So they have this trait and, um, And they tend to become very, very absorbed and very immersed because their daydreaming abilities are so vivid, so lifelike, so, um, you know, so immersive. Uh, and that's that's what enables them to lose time to be in it for like six hours in a row and not notice time passing by and then you know waking up after several hours and saying whoa, where did the time go so people who have a less immersive or a less lifelike imagination probably would not experience that as much because you know they would get bored they would go back to reality they they wouldn't uh, go into this alternative world um so it definitely, you know, it's definitely, definitely related to time loss, and um, but some people have absorption, have dissociative absorption tendencies without having maladaptive daydreaming, so they're not the same. I mean, you could be high in dissociative absorption because you you tend to get absorbed in movies and in books and in other things, and not in immersive daydreaming. But again, you tend to to become so absorbed that you tend to uh, answer people or do stuff on autopilot not notice what's going on around you, kind of be this dissociated self uh, and not like an integrated higher self that's kind of overarching, kind of looking at what's going on and being able to be vigilant and know what's going on. So different people, have. this is just a trait that's uh, an individual differences trait. Some people are like this and some people aren't. Um, And what I've shown is that if you're very high on dissociative absorption, uh, you do have more psychopathological symptoms and uh, and again, especially obsessive compulsive ones, um, and you know the reason is that well, I mean more research is needed, but at least one of the reasons is probably that when you k- kind of come back, come to wake up from this you know zoning out kind of thing, wh- whether you were in daydreaming or whether you were doing something else or just blanking out, when you come back, um, that kind of raises anxiety for some people. Not, not necessarily for everyone, but for some people, it's very anxiety-provoking to suddenly not be sure what happened, what I did, what I said, and then you start to ask yourself. So that's I see it as kind of a risk factor for this for obsessive compulsive disorder. When, so some
0: what are some of the high ones on the scale compared to what are some of the low ones? Because I, I it sounds counterintuitive on this, but would ADHD be ADHD be on the high scale for that? Uh, mostly because I know people always talk about, well, ADHD means you don't have attention. It's like, no, we're just lacking it. And it seems to be somewhere else. And if you talk about someone getting focused in on a movie and blocking out all the sounds around it, that's kind of average, just depending on how the severity is. But ADHD, I hyper-focus into things. And then it's only that thing that matters and nothing else around me that really I start consuming. So I would think that would be one of those on the high scale. It sounds counterintuitive because everyone thinks attention, ADHD means you're lacking. It's not that you're without attention.
1: Right. No, I think that the problem with ADHD is regulating your attention. So, and also in the ADHD field, there's this there's concept called hyperfocus, which you mentioned. Um, I think though that in the ADHD field, and maybe you know, maybe I'm wrong, but it, because it's not exactly my field, but uh, m- my impression is that it's not exactly understood. Um, how these things work together. How is it that you have ADHD, but then you, you're you able to hyperfocus? focus um, Because as you said, it sounds contradictory. Uh, people with ADHD tend to be high on the scale of dissociative absorption. But again, it seems like some of this is, is a conceptual ambiguity. It's like um, things aren't uh, de- defined accurately enough in a way that would be also different from the other definition um so it's really hard to say i think that um eventually people who who have adhd are uh, are able to to hyperfocus when it's something that that's interesting for them and their problem is regulating or controlling their attention um and i'll also say that, though that uh, i did do a study in 2019 that actually showed that dissociative absorption and an adhd scale uh, were different different constructs i showed that they were they had a relationship a positive relationship but it wasn't that high and they were two different constructs empirically and uh, i showed that dissociative absorption had uh, predictive value over and above um, adhd in predicting obsessive compulsive symptoms so i actually checked that to see if it's not like just the explanation is that you know adhd and ocd are somehow related and that's just the explanation, so I, I, I showed that it's not the explanation.
0: How did you do that study? Did you have participants that were willing to sign up and explain?
1: I, I did this study. It was a cross-sectional study, just a self-report, kind of like 300, you know, students that filled out questionnaires about ADHD, OCD, you know, dissociative absorption, and this is just uh, looking at the shared variances between the items.
0: Now, is there a treatment for the absorption that people can experience? Like, is there anything like practicing mind? I, I When I spoke with people about ADHD, they were very... Pressing on the whole, take your medication, Adderall, and I'm not against medication, but I'm also 25, and if it's a part of me, I would like to learn how to kind of deal with it and learn more about it, so I can help understand myself more. Nobody's really for that in that field, which is fine, but I don't know. That's just my path, but I'm interested if there's a medication somebody could take, if there's mindfulness meditation, which I've never attempted before, but I think there's anything that works for somebody. Obviously, it's not going to work for the whole bit, but if there's a little bit of evidence, and we take the time to go do a study, if see if meditation works or anything like that. I feel like, you know, give everything a shot because some people are experiencing real pain with some of this stuff, especially like, I mean, imagine not being able to soak up information uh that's going on around you only because you're too focused into something that just randomly tricks into your mind with you having no reaction to be able to control that at all.
1: Yeah. Well, um dissociative absorption specifically, that's not considered a disorder. So there's no treatment for dissociative absorption accordingly um however i would imagine that mindfulness training would help uh maybe medication also i don't know but mindfulness should help because it's it's uh you could say that mindfulness would be kind of the opposite than dissociative absorption uh because mindfulness is kind of like being aware being uh, noticing and kind of like a meta meta consciousness state where you're noticing your mental state, where you're thinking about your thoughts. Um and that's very different from dissociative absorption, where you kind of uh, uh you're you're very unaware, you're very um in the moment and which sounds good and it can be good in certain situations, but you know, if it happens too much, then yeah, maybe you should try to find ways to be more present, more um, you know, noticing what's going on around you.
0: When it comes um, to some so, of the present dangers with that absorption aspect, is that could that be future problems as well too? Like if someone's got a bill that they have to worry about or other adult things that they need to take care of, it can be probably a big hindrance on that.
1: Are you asking if, if absorption is a risk factor for later problems?
0: Yeah. Like if we talk about long-term goals or adult life problems, I would think that this would be a giant area it would really impact because if you're talking about in the moment or whatever that person's experiencing, you're not thinking about what's going to happen next week, the next day. I mean, it's, it might be a dumb question. Yeah.
1: No, I think that it's an important question because uh, maybe it is important to say that uh, this this dissociative state, I think, is quite normal in, in uh, young children. So it's, it's actually, I think, something that we would want a child to be like, we want the child to be absorbed in his or her play and not not worry about other things. And, you know, sometimes in actually in this day and age, I think that with raising children, there's the opposite problem where uh, parents kind of intrude into that absorption and of, of that healthy absorption that kids have and kind of like, you know, uh, with the screens the phones or asking them a lot of questions or they have to decide this or decide that because we treat them like small adults um, there i could talk an hour about that <laughs> also but uh, the, uh, i think that uh you know that there's a healthy absorption that happens you know developmentally and over time kind of we develop that consciousness, kind of part of our brains which is probably the frontal lobe area the pfc uh prefrontal and um and we we become more aware of our environments and we become more regulated kids are not regulated that's fine what we do as parents is we help them over time become regulated and and you know they become better planners they become better regulators they they become uh Just uh, they they can plan ahead and, you know, consider different aspects of something before they make a decision and make and make decisions and not just be intuitive. Um, So I think, yeah, that's the developmental process. So I'm not saying that if someone is high on dissociative absorption, they're childish. That's not what I (laughs) I am suddenly realizing that you could understand that is. But that's not what I'm saying, but I'm just saying it is related to how much you can regulate your attention. Much like uh, kids, is being a in development.
0: A, kids being in like a fantasy thing, you know, th- if they're daydreaming or if they're doing whatever, that's more acceptable than that's if you yeah, that That's fine. Yeah, that's great.
1: That's actually great. I think that that's part of normal development and healthy development. And we know that about a third of kids have an imaginary friend. Yeah. Um, and that's completely normal. So that's, there's nothing abnormal about that. Um, So they're experimenting, you know, with dialogues and social interactions in their minds, and they have a very vivid imagination. And because of that, sometimes children will have a harder time, um, you know, uh, differentiating reality and fantasy. Sometimes they could get confused. And again, that's fine and that's normal. Um, But, you know, the older we get, the more responsibility we have and the more we have to plan ahead and regulate ourselves and inhibit ourselves. And uh, this is just part of our, um, you know, developmental trajectory. When and we... for some people, it's harder.
0: Yeah. When we talk about the disassociative disorder, is there a benefit to it that some people can experience? I mean, it's not like hyperfocus. And I know a lot of people call hyperfocus like an ADHD superpower. Let me tell you, it's not. It's kind of difficult, especially if you're focused into something that you don't want to be focused into and it's kind of like an issue. Um, It's all you're thinking about all the time. But I'm wondering if this has a positive to it where if we talk about how people can maybe write a book, if you dissociate from everything around you. Um, depending on intensely how much they do it. I mean, I know some people that take that writing very seriously and they won't talk to you for months while they're working on a project, which makes it very, very difficult if you're trying to hear from them and check if they're still alive, but they crank out some great work when they do something like that. So I'm curious if you ever came across any benefits to it. And I understand that everyone does it, but I'm just curious if there's a certain area, maybe a specific job or anything type of a hobby
1: Okay so I have a few things to respond to that. So first of all um you've been asking me about dissociative absorption which is something I'm really interested in but we haven't really talked about maladaptive daydreaming. So I would first of all say that in terms of daydreaming abilities there are definitely people who control their daydreaming abilities and they have the ability for immersive daydreaming and it's not maladaptive for them because they control it. So it doesn't take over their lives. And there are definitely some people that I've talked to who have a creative career or, you know, a hobby, which is creative, that they use it, that people who are writers or uh, do a PhD or, you know, different things that they found that it helps them. So, yeah, I think that there are people who uh, have this ability for, really uh, strong, really vivid imagination that it helps them. Uh, So that's, that's kind of like one thing. Um, Also, we did a study on dissociative absorption uh, among people who do not have psychopathology, and we gave them like cognitive tasks. And we found out that uh, according, you know, in accordance with our hypothesis, although they had more errors in different cognitive tasks, there was one cognitive task Uh, which had a visual element to it. And we thought that they would be better at it. And indeed that, that was what happened. It was a mental rotation task where you get these shapes and two shapes, and you have to say if it's the same shape and you have to rotate it in your head to kind of see if it's the same shape or not. And they were much faster. So, so they were worse at some things, but they were much better at this. So they have a better, you know, visualization kind of quality and, um, so, you know, that could definitely be like if you're, I don't know, a designing interior designer of a house, like, yeah. I could imagine that that would be beneficial for you. Um, and also, we did a study. Uh, do, have you heard of the term flow?
0: I've heard of the term before, but you might need to explain it again.
1: Yeah, so flow is considered um, this altered kind of state of consciousness where you feel Like the thing that you're doing, like um, some kind of task or sport that you're doing at the moment, you feel like it's really flowing, that you're like in the zone. And it's defined as kind of like a balance between your skills and the difficulty. So it's not too easy, but it's not too hard. And you're really kind of in your zone. Um, And there are certain aspects of flow that are defined in a similar way to dissociation. Like uh, a change in your concept of time, um, but flow is considered a positive thing, and it's been related to you know positive kind of consequences, and dissociation is considered a negative thing, and it's related to psychopathology. So we did a study about flow and dissociation, and we thought our you know our hypothesis was that uh, self-efficacy, which is the degree to which I feel efficacious, I feel agentic, I feel that I can control things and influence things. So self efficacy, uh, we thought that that would be a moderator, like the thing that would determine whether the the flow or the dissociation or whatever would be positive or negative. Um, So we had kind of like a partial success in that study to show that there were also some findings that we didn't expect uh, so, for instance, in the state phase, we gave participants uh, a task. They had to play Tetris. And, um, yeah, and then and we measured their mood afterwards. And we found out that actually those who were high in, um, in uh, absorption or flow and all that, you know, immersive states, uh, they had an increase in their mood if they had low self-efficacy, and not if they had high self-efficacy, which surprised us. But then um, we realized that you know, those with high self-efficacy may have been those who were more determined to be successful in the game, and to you know to make as many you know complete as many rows as possible. And ma- maybe they were less able to kind of really get into it. And uh, so we think that that's the explanation for those we- weird results. Um, so again, it was that's, kind of like yeah, that's interesting it was complicated. with the low.
0: That's the interesting with the low. Th- uh, th- I'm gonna. I don't. I can't even pronounce that word. I'll efficacy. A, yeah. Efficacy. <laughs> um, That's interesting that it was the low people that you saw that with. I would have to think because maybe it's just to them it's a game. It's not considered an actual task or anything that would be. I mean, it is a task, but it's not considered like a a a main investment, much like a job or an interview or anything like that. Would so they're not so much paying attention to it, but they can still have that state of flow. But I bet yeah, but but you have to remember,
1: you have to remember those that these are students, undergrads who come to a lab to do an experiment. So definitely some could see this as a game and just, okay, I came here to have fun. You know, what do I care? I'll get the credit points anyway. And some could see this as, you know, something that I really have to do well in. So that's really interesting as well. I think that's part of the normal variance that we have among our participants.
0: I bet both parties were happy though when they had that long piece that came in on the Tetris game because everybody needs (laughs) that piece to complete so much. Uh, We're going to get some maladaptive daydreaming here in a minute. I just got a. When it comes to the actual dissociative disorder, can that be created or I guess I wouldn't say created, but intensified through things like video games or things that we have that do mindlessly take away our attention, like social media things and types of technology devices. I would have to feel like I have so many little nephews that get stuck in these immersive virtual reality things where nothing else matters. I mean, I've, the number of knees I've seen busted on a coffee table, just because they're so into this virtual reality game is ridiculous where I go, I mean, is that going to be a, a problem that we're going to eventually see down the line? I didn't know if you happen to think about about that at all?
1: I thought about it a lot. Uh, I do think, and a lot of people think this, that um, being in social media and, of course, being in uh, in in computer games that's that goes without saying. But but even being in social media, that kind of increases your dissociation. Um, And I think that people all around around now are more dissociative and more kind of, you know, you can forget in one minute what you wanted to do two minutes ago, Um, you know, because you looked at your phone and checked the news and, you know, it's kind of, you're always kind of jumping from one thing to the next. And that's, it's very hard to kind of, uh, you know, just be present in reality when you keep on jumping from this to that to that. Um,
0: I would agree. I don't I know, have a, though. I have a yeah. party line on that one. I think that changed after the pandemic. I don't know what happened. And I know it has not gotten back to normal with a lot of people. Um, but there was like a, a weird thing where people cared less now. It seems like, I'm, I don't know, maybe it's because I'm older, but it just seems like a lot of people are so easy to be like, no, this isn't for me and just walk out of a job or just be stuck in their own little universe. And it wasn't really like that before. Before I was like, I'm the only one that's not tuned into the conversation or I'm not tuned into the world. Now I'm starting to see it kind of everywhere. And I realize everyone now has, I mean, like I said, everyone being at home for so long during the pandemic, they started up their own tasks. They got their own things going on. A lot of people have businesses that they do on their own more now, Um, whether it's a small business, whether it's a small hobby, whether they think about painting for, to ship out paintings i don't know but i'm noticing that with a lot more people that they never fully cut off the attachment of what they made during the pandemic and they kept this going as like a hobby lifestyle and that's the more of i'm seeing that more of this this disassociativeness.
1: I, I don't i don't know about that i can say that definitely you know scientifically there has been a change in people i don't know specifically about the change that you're describing but there are a lot of studies in the mental health field that showed that ever since the pandemic there have been rises in <clears throat> depression anxiety suicidality you know the the works and uh, maladaptive daydreaming also has r- arisen uh, there was a study that showed that during lockdowns and all that there was an increase in maladaptive daydreaming so there there was an increase in, in actually almost virtually every symptom obsessive compulsive symptoms everything increased and uh, as a clinician i can also say that there have been increases in israel in um, in you know people seeking therapy so all the clinics are full it's really fine it's really hard to find a psychologist even uh, privately here in israel i don't know how it is in the states so it's and it's definitely ever since the pandemic it's uh, it's really different so it's very interesting that this uh, process yeah it's i don't i think that it'll take a lot of time to fully fully grasp and understand what the pandemic has done to the human race on all aspects.
0: I haven't uh, sought out any psychologists down here, so I don't know how hard it is to get one, but maybe I should try at some point. Um, (laughs) When, If there's an area that, and we're going to go to maladaptive daydreaming after this, but if there was an area that you could go and explore, um, whether it's something that might be a little bit down the line, where would you like to go when it comes to disassociative, um, just the disorder? Is there a certain study you'd like to do if there's something you might think about looking into a little bit more compared to what you have done studies on?
1: Well, I, you know, I have projects on the pipeline, so I can talk about the stuff that I'm going to do. So I have a a study about uh, maladaptive daydreaming and dissociation about their relationship, uh, which is a really big project. And it's kind of like partially funded, uh, which is starting out now. So uh, that's, you know, part of trying to show that maladaptive daydreaming has dissociative aspects and uh, this could, you know, benefit the field in terms of, uh, you know, if in a future version of a psychiatric manual, a diagnostic manual, they would consider inserting maladaptive daydreaming, you know, it could be in the dissociative disorders chapter. So we kind of want to know, you know, are these really similar is this appropriate to this nosology of, you know, c- categorizing it as a dissociative disorder? Does that work? Um, so that's kind of, you know, one line of of research that I have.
0: Um, how, how is it not um, easily seen as recognized under the same criteria? as that just because maladaptive daydreaming, you're tuned out of everything but your own fantasy and nothing else? Like there's not I don't even hear well, anybody again, when they're this, talking to me. When I'm again, on, like,
1: dissociative absorption is not, considered a disorder so it's so it's not that simple i mean it's actually considered some people say that dissociative absorption actually shouldn't be called dissociation because it's not really the you know the most extreme variant of dissociation which is uh feeling like two people or more um i do feel like it it is very related and a lot of other dissociation researchers would agree Um, that when you do things on autopilot, and your awareness is elsewhere, you kind of have this, perhaps normal, but you have this disintegration between two parts. And I, I believe that that's the basis for dissociative identity disorder, known as, you know, split personality among lay people. So, so I, I do believe that that's related to it. And I think also that maladaptive daydreaming is very related to that, not just because you zone out, because you could say, okay, so maybe it's a subtype of ADHD, but it's more than just zoning out. It's have, experimenting in your mind with different personalities or having an alter ego and feeling like two different people. And a lot of people who have maladaptive, maladaptive daydreaming, they, you know they say, when I come back to reality, reality feels unreal to me because the daydreams feel so real that reality kind of is gray and you know boring and unreal and not you know not the place that i really really want to be in and feel like myself and feel real and feel like it's very vivid and this feeling of unreality that's also a dissociative symptom that's called derealization there's there are dissociative symptoms called depersonalization derealization where you feel like yourself and the the world they feel strange and familiar um, so that's kind of like detach kind of a detachment feeling. Um, so these are all things that are very related. And so I, I actually have a chapter where I showed how maladaptive daydreaming has various characteristics that are dissociative. Um, but it could also be viewed for example, as a behavioral addiction. Yeah. Even if you don't say it's some type of ADHD, you could say it's a subtype of a behavioral addiction, like, uh, there's gambling disorder in the DSM, the you know diagnostic manual. So um, you could you could categorize it as something different. And also, some people could say it's on the OCD spectrum. Yeah. There's a chapter on OCD. There are different um, other other categories there that are considered an OCD spectrum, like uh, skin picking. And we know that maladaptive daydreaming is very related to skin picking. Like 25% in one study were. Why We're skin picking? Have, skin picking, like uh, just compulsively, you know, picking at a I scab was doing or, it a minute
0: ago with my hand. I was just picking the <laughs> inside. I have calluses on the, my hands, so I was just picking one exactly,
1: of the, but I, exactly. But it helps me focus so,
0: in, so I can actually pay attention to what, exactly. What's so being said. that's
1: exactly the thing. It's the same. It seems to be a very similar mechanism to people who do maladaptive daydreaming and do stereotypical motions because it helps them focus. It helps them trigger the fantasies in a more vivid way. So they do. These motions, Uh, some people pace, some people rock, some people twirl twirl around, some people and some people probably skin pick during their mild after daydreaming, I don't know. So it seems like there's this mind body connection here, where, you know, something with the motoric system, you have to do something repetitive, that kind of enables you to in your mind become you know more immersed in this internal world so that's very interesting and it seems to be related to the ocd spectrum so there are different chapters in the dsm where you could put this uh yeah. suggested disorder well,
0: i mean is it just is it just the awareness of maladapt? we're going to talk about maladaptive daydreaming now um but is it just the awareness aspect that's really i feel like it's a lot of these disorders that haven't really been recognized for so long, or whether they're taking time to be recognized, is because I guess the wording for it. I think maladaptive daydreaming is a really good term for it, but I just think that the daydreaming aspect is what takes people out. As soon as I say it, if I'm talking to someone about it, like maybe you should look into this or something, someone with ADHD, a friend of mine or something, they'll be like, Well, everybody daydreams. I'm like, You can't just, you, there's a difference. Let's talk about the difference. And then you start learning about it and you realize it's not the same thing, but it's also like mind wandering and other things. People hear a certain term like when you mentioned the disassociative and then you talked about some people call it split personality see i associate split personality with bipolar disorder or those other no, types no
1: that's not related no that's not yeah that's mixing it so okay so you said a lot of important things so i have to choose what i'm going to respond to the whole
0: topic is confusion that's it <laughs>
1: right yeah no that's really important because first of all you're right i mean it's very confusing and In retrospect, I think the term is not the best one. And I'm actually writing about that, uh, something which I hope will one day I'll finish and submit as a paper. I think the term should be changed, even though it's really kind of become popularized. But um, the term daydreaming is too broad. It's too vague, and it's been used in different ways. So first of all, I think that fantasizing is more accurate. um, But... uh, I, I would maybe call it, you know, addictive fantasizing or something like that. So uh, I, I want to say that one of the things that we're doing in my lab, I have a doctoral student whose topic of her dissertation is ADHD and maladaptive daydreaming. Uh, she's already published a study on that. So um, And we're doing more work and uh, she's developed a questionnaire. We haven't published this yet, but we have very interesting results. A scale, a self-report scale that actually asks about the, the properties of the mental pattern. And she really uh, found she was able to find uh, these characteristics that make the, the daydreaming, you know, the, the maladaptive daydreaming that, that characterize it. So it's, it's her work is on differentiating between mind wandering, which is the prototypical mental pattern of people with ADHD and and daydreaming and fantasizing or maladaptive fantasizing uh which is which is different because it's more immersive it's more like a storyline it's more coherent it's it's uh it's continuous so you stop like you stop now and then you continue in six hours from the same point like watching an and a series on netflix you know you continue on with what you were doing before uh very different from mind wandering so mind wandering is just you know the distraction of um, jumping from one thing to another, and it's it's not necessarily a story or a narrative. Um, and also in fantasizing, it's usually something which is less similar to reality. It's uh, it could be like superheroes or something more fantasy-like. It doesn't have to be, but but that's something that would you know that's one characteristic that would steer us more in the direction of fantasizing than mind wandering and in the mind wandering literature they don't really you know they don't look at these differences so they just call everything mind wandering or daydreaming and they use the, these concepts interchangeably and they don't really make these these distinctions which are really important i think because i think it's a very different mechanism people with, with maladaptive daydreaming they their problem is that they're addicted and that's very, very different than someone who just, you know, happens to be very distra- easily distracted.
0: It's a lot of these terms, like the, the, the mass confusion that's with it, it, it. Probably a reason why a lot of it takes a while to get recognized as its actual own thing, because there are similarities that I can see. But there, if you kind of look at them like separately, they're very, very individualistic, and they have their own kind of experiences that go with it. But Would a lot of this come from better education about it? Would a lot of this come from changing terms for it? I mean, how do you get things recognized under certain branches when you have the data that you have?
1: Well, so again, uh, what we do is we do a lot of research and we're hoping that, you know, when I say we, I mean me and Professor Zomer and a few other, you know, researchers from around the world who have joined this endeavor and, uh you know, just getting good research out there. And uh, the popularity of the term has been exponentially growing. Uh, The subreddit with, uh, you know, dedicated to it is is now over 100,000 members. To it, So it's been really exponentially growing. And, um, you know, I just hope that uh, in the future it gets recognized so that clinicians can help their clients better. I, I give a lot of talks to clinicians in, uh, in my area. And, um, you know, people, just the clinicians who hear, they always say, wow, you know, now that I think of it, I had a patient who had that. You know, and they just didn't know how to call it or how to how to think of it. And that's so important that, you know, as a as a clinical construct, which we know is related to a lot of suffering, you know, we should we should have just more data about it. So I just tried to get the word out there.
0: When Dr. Sommer emailed you and I mean, have you never heard of the term before about? No, I've never heard
1: of it before.
0: And you were very open to looking into it and understanding what it was. Sometimes I bring it up to some past guests who are psychologists or something, and they just dismiss me like it's nothing.
1: Well, first of all, you have to understand that I was a very young researcher, and Professor Zomer is like the authority in Israel on uh, on dissociation, and I was a dissociation researcher. And getting an email from Professor Zomer, you know, saying, "Okay, listen, I read your article, and it looks like we're interested in the same thing." Uh, You know, read these emails that people sent to me. So, you know, it's different than, you know, he grabbed my attention, first of all. But then the important thing is that I read those emails and it was just fascinating, you know, because here was a real, really, you know, unknown clinical construct, which had no, there was no way to conceptualize it in in the the concepts that we currently have. So this was really interesting and it was really related to the things that I was interested in. So it was very different from the situation that you're describing.
0: How do you get invested in something that doesn't necessarily affect you? I mean, I don't know if you experienced maladaptive daydreaming, but for me, no, I, only, I've I don't been- have
1: that ability at all. I can't like, if you would let me just sit around and daydream, I would get bored really quickly.
0: I um, I got really invested in ADHD. Uh, Only because it not only impacts me, but I also think of like a kid who probably has a cell phone at the age of six or seven and they go and try and look up ADHD and nightmares, which I experience quite frequently. And there's like one to two studies on it. There's nothing else about nightmares. It's enough about sleep, but not nightmares specifically. So I kind of bring this over with maladaptive daydreaming, where you got to think about a kid who has access to the internet who can look it up and be able to try and find resources to it. And if we don't accept it or we don't talk about it or we don't, a lot of people don't bother acknowledging it then what are we going to do when that kid tries to figure out some answers about himself you know it to me that's i'm just curious what your interest is how do you stay motivated and keep pushing forward on this aspect
1: well okay so i have a few answers first of all i just want to say as a side note because i'm also a dream researcher that there are a few studies showing that adhd is related to nightmares but there's also studies that show that um do you know the concept morningness eveningness
0: no, I'm- like if you're a morning person <laughs> oh, or yeah, an evening, yeah. like okay. if
1: you're a night person or a morning person, like when you're more energized. So ADHD is related to being a night person and also to having variability in your kind of you know sleep schedule. And both the both of those things that I just mentioned are related to nightmares. So th- those might be the explanations. Both being a night person. And having a lot of variability and not having like a regular sleep schedule, both those things are related to nightmares. So that was just a side note that's not related to my adaptive daydreaming. I'll let you think about that. So well,
0: I was just going to say, is is it common for my sleep? Like my sleep's usually like two hours, but I dream and it feels like eight years. I I've never I could I've explained the most realistic dreams on this show already that just sound like I had been sleeping for what seems like nine hours or something like that, but that's always how I've gotten these dreams, but they're always nightmares and it's very in- intense. And I found like one or two different studies. And I try to get someone to talk about it with ADHD. Cause I didn't know if that was the thing with ADHD. It makes me feel a lot better about myself. I was right. I was like, how do I write this down in a dream diary? There's nothing you can even ex- describe about it.
1: Right. Well, I've written about uh, dreams that are unusual and uh, feeling aroused, like being aroused in your dream. Like aroused in terms of vigilance, like being vigilant in your during your sleep and having unusual dreams. I've, written, I've' I have several papers on that, but that's a completely different topic. So I'm just gonna answer what you asked me before. Uh, you asked, how do I stay motivated? So you know, at first it was kind of like a side project for me. Um, but then it became more of my main thing just because uh, the more I got into it and the more I heard stories from people who emailed me, they started emailing me as well now. So not just Ellie. So uh, first of all, the stories of the people are very interesting and the the gratitude, you know, they write us and they say, oh my God, you know, thank you so much. Please keep researching this. Finally, I have a name for it and whatever. And, uh, you know, thank you and please do this. And, you know, so that's as a psychologist who, you know, wants to help people, you know, that's why I chose this profession. So that definitely affects me those emails. So that's one thing. But also, over time, I kind of realized all the dissociative properties it it has, it really has. So that, again, that made it closer to what I was already interested in, which it, I'm really interested in the kind of like connection between dissociation and OCD. And that's exactly part of the, it's exactly like on those crossroads. So I don't know, it's related to stuff that I'm interested in. But but you're right. I I mean I'm not a maladaptive daydreamer. Um, I don't have that that ability. Uh, I don't know. It's interesting. Still,
0: I mean it's it's good on you for being passionate about it. If you don't experience it, I I just find that that's like the I has to usually affect me to me to get interested into something, especially to the point of being like an advocate on some things. I mean, there's things I'll be an advocate for, but it just I I I respect that. Thank you for doing what you do. But um when it comes to maladaptive day, daydreaming research, is that subreddit like are you getting a lot of like interesting ideas from people on there that are I've heard about this a couple of times from Dr. Somer and um Jane Rachel when she was on here talking about the subreddit. If it's that large of a group, I wonder if you're getting a wide range of experiences. You could easily just look at certain things and I'm sure anybody from that group will probably be able to offer whatever experience they have if you're trying to do a specific study on things as well too because the limited well
1: we've we've uh we've advertised studies there so i guess that some of our participants have been uh you know some of those consumers um personally i don't tend to get ideas from there usually because i don't have time to just uh just uh look into it but um I have a lot of things on my plate as it is, but my students definitely uh, sometimes, you know, they're on it. Um, Could I yeah. ask what
0: your opinion on social media being uh, raising awareness on some of this stuff? That's where I first came across it was from um, uh, TikTok. Surprisingly, happened to have a couple videos on there. And I think you start you put up something about maladaptive daydream, your ADHD gets a ton of hits because a lot of people understand it and they are experiences related to the actual thing, but you start realizing that you're not just alone in it. Cause if there's not a whole lot of talking about a certain thing, you start to feel like, like, I thought ADHD was specifically my personality. And then I find out it's not my personality, which is good and bad. At the same time, I was like, damn, I'm not original. But at the same time, I was like, at least there's a bunch of people out there that understand what I'm going through and it makes it like a community aspect.
1: Well, I think that you said it all. There are um, advantages and disadvantages to social media. So I think that it, social media is especially important in this field, which is something which is not known or not recognized by the mainstream kind of like the diagnostic categories or, uh, you know, psychiatric system. So people kind of need to find each other. And say, yeah, you're not alone. I do this too. This is not just you. You're not the weird one. You're not crazy. You know, th- and this is this is what people tell us that they felt when they found out the, the they, that this term existed. You know, that they finally felt like they're not crazy. They're not alone. They're not the only ones. They felt understood. They, you know, they felt like someone could define them or give them words for what, what they were experiencing. So in that sense, that's really good. That's a good thing, and that's. You know, you can sometimes ask the same about um, about uh, diagnoses in general in the field of mental health. Is a diagnosis a good thing? You know, so on one hand, it's bad because it, it might promote stigma. But then on the other hand, it's good because people people can feel understood and they can feel like okay there's a name for my thing and now it can be researched and we can know the prognosis or you know explore different treatment options so it has advantages and this is the, the disadvantage I didn't say the disadvantage is that um, you know people talk on social media and like you said before they can misunderstand the word daydreaming so they can diagnose themselves when actually maybe they have something else maybe someone with OCD would find this subreddit and believes that they have maladaptive daydreaming and even maybe be angry at a practitioner who suggests that they have OCD and say, "No, you don't understand me when actually they do have OCD or maybe they have both. I don't know. So it can cause different things. You know, it's a, it's, it's a problem because, you know, there's not some like an adult and <laughs> that like a, a practitioner or a clinician who gets to know the person and makes a, a formal diagnosis, Um, So, you know, that could lead to problems. So again, advantages and disadvantages. For some people, it's been really a lifesaver, but then for others, maybe, I don't know, maybe something that's not so good.
0: You know why movements increase the maladaptive daydream, like repetitive motions and things of that sort? We talked about skin. I think that's there's larger. No,
1: no, but there's a larger range of stereotypical movements. No, that's a good question. I think that we don't understand it yet, and we have to do more research. Uh, We know that some kids have this mechanism as well. Some people it starts for them as children. Um, We're we're actually doing a a study together with some pediatricians in um, in Canada and the UK. Uh, that they they recognized uh, this phenomenon in, in children called uh, intense imagery movements, where children who had the diagnosis of stereotypical movement disorder, that's actually a diagnosis in childhood, stereotypical movement disorder. Um, some of them report that when they do the stereotypical movement disorder, they have these uh, internal, immersive internal worlds and th- th- this intense imagery. And they termed this, they coined this term unrelatedly. They didn't know the term maladaptive daydreaming. And they published this like in 2011, I think. So it was really like in parallel, uh, these works. And at some point, we found each other and we realized that we we're researching the same thing probably, only on a different you know, time scale in terms of developmental trajectories. So uh, we know that children do this as well. They can uh, twirl or pace or You know, even headbanging has been uh, reported. So there are different types of movements. And for some reason, this makes people um, get into this like hypnotic, it's like self-hypnosis. It's like kind of like inducing self-hypnosis. It gets you into the zone and uh, we don't understand exactly why and aside from the stereotypical movements there is also in maladaptive daydreaming some people who have movements that kind of like embody the 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 content of the daydream so like uh, if you're daydreaming about hugging someone you know you might hug a pillow or or a doll or something so some people do movements that are actually in accordance with what they're daydreaming about and other people do these movements, which are stereotypical. So it's really interesting to understand more. And uh, and maybe there's a difference between these people and these people. We don't know yet. There's not enough research.
0: This is a question you might have the answer for. You might not. Um, just I've just thought of this. and I never asked Dr. Simmer this or uh, Jane this question, but have any of the maladaptive daydreams became violent? I've never heard or experienced myself anything violent. And I don't even know at this point now if I'm experiencing maladaptive daydreaming because I just limit it to cardio, but I can also do it at work. It's not really impeding my life, but I'm wondering if anybody's experiencing things, not like getting superpowers, but something violent or something bad, like if their brain just goes negative all of a sudden. I would have to think that there's a strong correlation with OCD because you're trying to control. And this is like, it's like playing Sims. You have to control the space in your head and everything goes your way. I mean, that's perfection right there but then at the same time what happens if it goes bad i know a lot of people that have negative thoughts and things i don't know if it ever affects a daydream okay
1: so the thing is yeah definitely some people fantasize about violence um you know which is fine as long as it's just in your head you know there's nothing wrong with that um just like sexual fantasies you know it's fine you know you can fantasize about whatever you want um The thing is, with maladaptive daydreaming, it's not necessarily always just good fantasies about things going your way. It can be really uh, various things. Like, for example, one study showed that those who had histories of trauma and maladaptive daydreaming they had a lot of fantasies about, about traumas. And they not necessarily like, like, it's not like PTSD flashbacks, that they weren't just thinking about what happened to them. They had these whole storylines where, you know, it could be a different trauma from what happened to them, or they could be in a different role, they could be the perpetrator, or they could be a rescuer, or or they could be a victim, but get rescued. They, there were different things, uh, different types of fantasies and this is more similar uh to to someone watching tv so when you watch tv when you watch netflix or whatever uh sometimes you would want to watch the tragedy you would want to watch a horror movie or you know different things which are not all just comedies because this makes you feel it it, it's a it's a virtual realm that kind of activates emotions and, you know, crying because of uh, a character with, who dies is not like actually losing someone in your real life. And people get some kind of a pleasure from, for, from that. And we can ask why. I mean, personally, by the way, I don't like to watch tragedies. I like feel-good stuff. But a lot of people like to watch things that are not feel-good. And we could ask why, but it's the same thing. People with maladaptive daydreaming, a lot of people do have fantasies that have tragedies and people dying and bad stuff happening. That's definitely part of, you know, just part of the range that they have. And they have all these different emotions. And again, that's one of the thing that, things that my doctoral student recognized that's different between mind-wandering and fantasizing, where you have a range of emotions, a range of different emotions and very strong evocative ones uh, so,
0: yeah. I, have, I, I Another question I'm going to ask, I don't know if you might know the answer to, but have they been able to see from a brain scan if there's certain parts during, like if someone was going to practice maladaptive daydreaming under one of these scans, they could see certain parts that it would light up and what areas of the brain is probably affecting so, the most? Yeah,
1: so there are not, not yet any published studies on uh, brain scans uh brain you know brain waves we'll get one eventually Um, uh yeah there was one starting before COVID, and then you know when the pandemic started it it couldn't happen uh and there's there's a researcher in uh in turkey actually who's i think working towards that so i hope that's that's going to happen soon i just want to say that i'm i have to finish
0: i got you no i appreciate i appreciate the time you gave me to talk on my show um and setting everything up to do everything, the audio and everything. I really do appreciate the time. Is there a place where people can find any of your links um, that you'd like to promote? I'll make sure I link them in the description.
1: I have a website, like my lab's website, which has um, the list of publications. And also we have a website, Ellie and I have, uh, Ellie's all now. We have a website called the International Consortium for Maladaptive Daydreaming Research, the ICMDR. Uh, And there are all the studies there freely available which you can download. So you can put that link as well.
0: And I'll link all those in the description. Like I said, thank you again for giving me the time to talk about this. Um, And thanks everybody for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank Podcast.